1: Justice Breyer announces his intention to step down from active service after four decades. Four decades on the federal branch and 28 years on the United States Supreme Court.
2: I wonder if sometimes, if the institution mattered more to him than the outcomes. And here were people who were undoing the institution.
0: And Welcome to Amicus. This is Slate's podcast about the courts and the Supreme Court and the rule of law and the law. I'm Dahlia Lithwick, and I cover those things for Slate.
1: I mean, eventually I'll retire. (laughs) Sure I will. And, And it's hard to know exactly when. And, you know, there's a famous story. I can't remember who the justices were. You have to look that up. I think it was, maybe it was Stephen Field. I don't know. Or Holmes was sent off to tell him. Well, maybe it's time here. Maybe it's time. And um, then I think Brandeis or somebody went to see Holmes. I don't have the name quite right, but but uh, he said, uh, do you remember Mr. Holmes, say, when you were sent off to see uh, Justice Fields, say, or Gray, maybe, and, and to tell him that maybe the time had come to return? Yes, said Holmes, and a dirtier day's work I've never done.
0: That was Associate Justice Stephen Breyer talking to me in December of 2020. A little bit over a year later, that eventuality has come to pass. Justice Breyer announced his retirement this week, following hot on the heels of the Supreme Court's decision to hear major affirmative action cases and a week of headlines consumed by which justice was wearing a mask at the Supreme Court and why. Justice Stephen Breyer, a champion of compromise and civility, of bipartisanship and mutual respect, seems to have timed his departure from the court in the most political fashion possible. He will be turning the lights out, in some sense, on a fractured partisan institution. He might no longer recognize it all. So this week's show, we're asking a former federal judge and leading legal thinker, Judge Nancy Gertner, to walk us through what Breyer's retirement and the looming nomination wars mean for the Supreme Court, writ large, writ small, all of it. Later on in the show, we're going to talk to Slate's own Mark Joseph Stern for more about the Briar News, his legacy, how this is going to play out uh, on the court how he behaves for the rest of the term and talk a little bit about the front runners. That segment is accessible only to Slate Plus members. Thank you, thank you for being the support we need right now. If you're not a member, you can sign up at slate.com slash amicus plus and access bonus content like my conversation with Mark and add free versions of all of Slate's network of podcasts and you will never hit a paywall on slate.com. It's only a dollar for your first month that is slate.com slash amicusplus. And as always, thank you, thank you for supporting the journalism we do. But first, we turn to somebody to help us think through just a lot of the questions under the Briar vacancy about justice, about judging, the politics of the next nomination, and about Being a judge in this moment. Judge Nancy Gertner is a former federal judge appointed to the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts by Bill Clinton in 1994. She retired from the bench in 2011 to teach at Harvard Law School. Judge Gertner has written and spoken around the world on civil rights, on gender, and on sentencing reform and so many other topics. Her wonderful autobiography, In Defense of Women, Memoirs of an Unrepentant Advocate, was published in 2011. She very recently served on President Biden's Court Reform Commission, and her new paper, Reimagining Judging, published through the Square One Project, tries to rethink sentencing. So welcome, Judge Gertner to Amicus, I really want to hear what you have to say about what's
2: barreling down the pike at us. Do we have days or just a a short time? (laughs) We need
0: days. You can take days. This could take a while. But I want to start with Justice Breyer. I noted when I first heard the news that he was stepping down on Wednesday that here is this last judge who just refused to be partisan and he wouldn't be pushed out by the left because it would politicize the court and he wouldn't accede to what the right wing of the court was doing as political because right to the end, Judge Gertner, he insisted that the court is apolitical, that justices are not junior varsity politicians in robe. And he lived on this knife edge of always wanting to protect the court as an institution, but also wanting to protect the liberal values, the his own legacy of what he had put into place. And he kind of at the very last second, maybe I'm being unfair, but I think this announcement in January, he didn't wait till the spring to give... The Biden administration, lots of runway uh, to replace him.
2: Feels like it's ultimately a really political act. I don't think he had a choice. I don't think he had a choice. He is all that you described. He is um, an institutionalist. He wanted to believe that the court as an institution was apolitical. His book last year was timed perfectly so that he could make that point over and over again, But I don't think he had a choice. I think that the Ginsburg model of someone who was making contributions to the court up until the very end, but who ultimately dies in the Trump administration and winds up being replaced by someone who is her polar opposite. You know, he's an institutionalist on the one hand, but he was deeply political on another. He was an aide to Senator Kennedy. The sentencing guidelines, which he crafted really was extraordinary. His input in the sentencing guidelines, his vision was moderation on the one hand. On the other hand, let's split the difference and let's have a rational system, which was very political because it was sort of trying to you know, walk a thin line between all of the political fires that were going on. So he's political in the sense that he understood the stakes here on the one hand, and he's an institutionalist on the other. But he had no choice. He had no choice but to retire at this point. You know, he's 83, had no choice. The only thing I wonder about is whether there was a moment when he saw the new conservative majority grabbing cases, intentionally undoing, um, what is it, a 60-year legacy of not radical stuff. I would even not even say liberal stuff, but but certainly liberal-ish you know, decisions of the court. And he saw them sort of not just dealing with this stuff as it arrived. In other words, here's a case that we have to take because it meets all of the usual standards. They were aggressively reaching out to undo cases from the past 40 years. I wonder what he felt when he saw that happen and whether that was the trigger. But I think it was bound to happen no matter what anybody said. I knew it was going to happen. You knew that it was going to happen. It was only a question of when.
0: It's interesting because I'm thinking about some of his questioning, even in the Dobbs argument, the most recent, you know, 15-week Uh, Mississippi abortion ban, and some of his questions in that oral argument were about the legitimacy of the court, right? Like, it's clear that the thing that was dispiriting to him wasn't just this one-dimensional, the court is drifting ever rightward. It was that between the way the shadow docket is operating, as you say, between the ways in which the court was reaching out to take questions that were not properly before it, and then willy-nilly saying, eh, precedent, maybe overrated, the way we were hearing in Dobbs, that in a sense, he was fighting this two-front war where he really does feel, and and this I absolutely credit him with, he feels that the nine justices are the sole guardians of the reputation, the integrity, the independence of the court. And that, I think, almost pained him more than the rightward drift, that the court was kind of, for lack of a better word, kind of crapping all over centuries in his mind, right? He always goes back to the trail of tears and the court didn't have legitimacy and let Justice Marshall enforce it. I mean, he really, I think, sees this as an existential Moment for public regard for the court, and that seems to be breaking his heart more than the end of Roe and the expansion of gun rights.
2: Well, I think I think that's right. One of the things that I uh, struggle with, I'm, I'm writing a memoir about judging, which is very difficult. But it was that you temper your politics the minute you walk on the bench, and if you're an appellate court judge, you have to deal with the other two guys on the panel. This is a court that doesn't have to deal with anybody. That's the horrifying point. They don't have to deal with anyone. They got a clear road to do whatever the hell they want to do with precedent. I think that's what he saw. They don't have to struggle with Justices Sotomayor, Kagan, and him. They didn't have to struggle with anyone. They have a clear path. And that's the ultimate legitimacy issue. They can reject precedent. They don't have to struggle with you know what the usual standards are for cert. They don't have to struggle with anything. And I think he saw that not just in the destroying of a liberal legacy, because although I believe that he has liberal instincts, I wonder if sometimes if the institution mattered more to him than the outcomes. And here were people who were undoing the institution. The affirmative action case that they just took, there is no reason to take it except to undo affirmative action. The law was settled. There was no division amongst the circuits that only the Supreme Court could resolve and therefore the only purpose of taking it is to undo decades of settled precedent. Dobbs, there was no reason to take that except to undo Roe v Wade. There are standards for what the Supreme Court may take and this court is ignoring those standards. And they have four reliable votes to do whatever the hell they, want to do, which is not judging in any way, shape, or or form. So I wonder what it must feel like in those conferences when he sees that it really does not matter what Kagan Sotomayor and he says to this group at all.
0: I guess riffing off of that, I- I've been very elegiac about him, because I think, and look, I've been covering the court for 20 years, and I remember, you know, when he and Justice Scalia would go around on their, like, multi-city concert tour, and, right, Justice Breyer, I remember likening them to, like, Justice Grover and Justice Oscar, you know, and they'd wave their muppety hands in the air, and Justice, you know, Breyer would talk about workability and pragmatism, and Justice Scalia would grouse about Rome, home, home, originalism, and you know strict constructionism, but they really loved each other, and they really started from a premise of deep respect and regard for the and other. They,
2: and they had to deal with each other. They felt right. that because of the there were stakes. Report, yeah, they had to account for the other's view, and these guys don't. So, I, I, I what you're getting to, I
0: think, answers maybe this question that I was gonna ask which is you know he had a skill set has i guess i don't want to talk about him in in that sense but he has this skill set of working the levers right the thing that we associate with maybe justice brennan that he could get O'Connor, that he could get Rehnquist, that he could, you know, I interviewed him just over a year ago, and he was so careful to say, credit is a weapon. You don't want to get credit. You just want to get results. And he learned that, I think he would say, from Senator Kennedy, that even if you hate each other, you find a point of mutual interest,
1: and you do the deal. When you disagree with someone, we talk, and talk politely. And you go on and eventually, and it happens almost always, they'll say something you agree with. And then he would say, or you can say, let's work with that. And you work with it. And not always by any means, but sometimes you make some progress here. And if it's a positive and you get and say, okay, we all can sign on to that. And then in the Senate, you know, you announce this bill or that bill, or we got this passed and the press is there. And hey it's the other person you push forward. That builds confidence and makes agreement easier the next time. If you succeed, there'll be plenty of credit to go around. And if you don't, who wants the credit?
0: And so you subordinate your big ego and you get the deal done. And what you're saying is all of those skills just Matter not at all. They kind of clatter to the ground now because you can do the deal, you can concede. We've seen in the last couple of years he and Justice Kagan make concessions and get nothing in return, and that he had this one superpower, which is deep mutual respect, enduring friendships and relationships. I think he thought right to the end that as long as we're nice to each other around the lunch table, maybe I can get some outcomes.
2: But it was very clear that stopped working for him. I mean, it, one is being nice, but but it was also the legitimacy of the court depended on appealing to reasoned decision making. What does that mean? Well, there are specific standards for cert right? Are there divisions in the country as between courts of appeals? Is it a matter of public importance? There were standards for cert. Once Amy Coney Barrett joined the court, those don't matter. The driving force is not, does this meet the standards for cert? The driving force is, do we think this was the right decision? So yes, he's incredibly civil. He really is a warm and wonderful Uh, human being. But the institutional issue, the principles that drive the court that all of them are supposed to adhere to really don't matter with this group. I mean, I thought I was as cynical as the day is long, but even I have been surprised at how easily they have cast off not just the usual precedents, but the notion that they're going to be on the court for, you know, decades. This conservative majority is really entrenched. They can take their time. And take their time and be respectful of the institutional issues. But they're not taking their time. They are ripping all of these precedents completely asunder. And I think that's got to have been shocking to him. Be- before Amy Coney Barrett got on the court, I was tracking all of the decisions that talked about precedent. You must have seen these all these wonderful uh, Kagan dissents, which said, you know, really smashing precedent to smithereens and what will be next. And you thought that it was only about abortion, but it wasn't only about abortion. It was about everything. And I, I think that's got to have been incredibly heartrending to him and really troubling.
0: Yeah, again, I'm thinking of the Dobbs oral argument where he came in prepared to defend his opinion in whole women's health and <laughs> prepared to defend the reasoning in the Louisiana decision and suddenly finds himself in this maelstrom where Brett Kavanaugh is <laughs> doing a Hamlet about, eh, maybe it's all overrated. <laughs> you know, maybe we should revert. and I think it was this meta discussion where it was really clear that there were five justices, maybe six. I don't know where Justice, Chief Justice Roberts comes down on reversing precedent. But when you're having a meta discussion about the value of precedent in the first instance, you're not
2: talking about abortion at all. Right, right. But they had been talking about the value of precedent, you know, long before that. They've been talking about the value of precedent in their writings, you know, it's interesting. I mean, the, 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 the right talks about the agenda of left-wing judges. I think that's a riot. For one thing, the question of what is a left-wing judge is an interesting question. But when I got on the bench, the first thing that I experienced and the first thing I wrote about when I left the bench was that the, quote, Democratic judges were mostly ducking. It, it, we're mostly ducking. I mean, in fact, I, I gave a speech about how the principal pressure I felt was not the political one. It was to duck, avoid, and evade. Just keep your head down, settle cases, you know, dismiss cases on technical grounds and you'll be happy. And the right was rending the fabric asunder. They were coming in and even that's the case with district court judges now as well. Trump appointed district court judges. No, I think Justice Breyer had to, I mean, I know what he wanted to believe, but this has got to be heartbreaking, just heartbreaking. It's funny because
0: over the last year or so, the more he protested that he was protecting the reputation and the independence of the court and the more the left doubled down, tripled down, quadrupled down to push him out for fear of him making the Justice Ginsburg mistake that you started with. The more I said, this is insane, it's like sitting on the chest of, you know, the Easter Bunny or Santa Claus and just smacking them saying, why won't you just <laughs> concede that there's no such thing as, I mean, he deeply believed this. I do want to give him credit on beyond this romantic notion that he was the guardian of the court's reputational interests. I do want to give him this. And I wonder, Judge, if if you uh, agree, he was a bone deep believer in facts. <laughs> and a bone deep believer that government exists to solve problems. I mean, that was right from his dad who worked for school boards. His whole life was enmeshed with, as you said, it was politics, but it was also small p-politics, right? Citizen activism, educating yourself, get yourself elected, be in the discourse. I mean, he really believed that government exists to do things to help people live a better life. And I think in that way also, time just passed him by because he's now staring down the barrel of, you know, non-delegation doctrine and, you know, complete attack on the administrative state, the regulatory state. I mean, we talk about it so much on this show, but he sat there in the OSHA arguments about the vaccine or or test mandates saying – what are you all thinking? Like, are you really going to do this in a pandemic? Like, this is what government exists for. And I feel as though that's another way in which just history passed him by. Linda Greenhouse, I think, said he was the right man for the wrong time in her piece. But he really still has this very romantic attachment both to finding fact and that government can fix things for people. And this court, I think there are four, maybe five justices on this court who don't believe in either of those things.
2: I, I think that it's government fixing things and it's also the Kennedy legacy, but it also is he's a deep believer in courts. He's a deep, deep believer in courts. You know, it's it's funny on the White House commission there were other judges I I, I was among the group, as you know, who believed that this conservative majority and the ways in which the Republicans are trying to change voting, this conservative majority is now entrenched for decades to come, and that that's a distortion of the Supreme Court in ways that we really have not seen. And there were some other judges, and I've debated them publicly, who, who, you, who it's almost as if you, they wanted to say, don't say that out loud. Shh, don't say that out loud. If you say it out loud, it will make it worse. Don't criticize the court because it'll make it worse. And I think Breyer was a lot like that, which is what you're describing may well be true, but don't say it out loud because if you say it out loud, it will make it worse. So he will never say it out loud. But I mean, I do agree with you that it's both the court as an institution and government as a force for good. And the OSHA case, the notion that this court used that case to stand on their high horse about delegation you know, there are many over-delegation cases. OSHA is not one of them. I'm looking forward to the Environmental Protection Agency and how that fares. I have a personal interest in the sentencing commission, which I think was in fact over-delegation, you know, but that's a whole other a whole other discussion. No, I think it is a question of good government. So I think that, that he certainly is part of that tradition, but mostly I just wonder whether his heart is breaking over this court, as mine is, as yours is.
0: We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Judge Nancy Gertner.
1: and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.
0: Let's talk for a minute about the politics of this confirmation fight, because it seems to me a couple of things, none of which bode well, I would think. You've got a 6-3 supermajority, as you say, probably for 30 years. (laughs) I mean, it's hard to imagine absent court repair, court reform, I'm sorry, and court expansion that this isn't a a supermajority for a very long time, in which case you take the win, I would think. You just say, hey, Biden is going to put someone on the court and they're going to be smart and qualified Okay, we still have a six to three court. As you said, it doesn't matter. We don't even have to negotiate with them because there's only three of them they're going to lose. And yet, in the short amount of time since we've heard that Breyer's stepping down, we're already getting, I guess I can just call them full-on racist attacks on the not-yet-named Black woman that Biden has pledged to put on the bench. And I'm not going to name the tweeters. I don't think it's really worth it. But we've got one tweet that comes out that says, you know, this is identity politics. We're going to get a lesser black woman. We have another tweet that suggests that Katanji Brown Jackson, who's the front runner from the DC circuit, has, quote, serious quality issues. I don't understand. I mean, I guess I do understand. But let's talk about the ways in which this needs to turn into critical race theory, affirmative action. Black women are inherently not qualified. This is not representative of how tiny the number of black women in the judiciary are. I mean, it feels to me as though given the choice between going high and saying, of course, all of these women on the shortlists are eminently qualified, and redoing this tawdry battle about how they're just not that smart, they're just not that impressive. Joe Biden is a chump for making this promise, even though Ronald Reagan made the near-identical promise when he nominated Sandra Day O'Connor. Why make the choice to use this to just fuel the fire. And I know this is a long question, but it feels to me as though the inevitable result, if you start by tweeting that they're not smart, is that you get what you have now directed at Sonia Sotomayor, which is if you start with the predicate that this woman who graduated summa cum laude from Princeton, Phi Beta Kappa, one of the smartest by any measure candidates for the court, and 20 years later they're still calling her stupid and she lives with that. Is this just seeding the ground for decades of calling whoever this woman of color is stupid for the rest of her career?
2: I think that that's right. I think that that is a drumbeat that we've been living with. Frankly, I mean, it was women generally, and now it's women of color. It's a drumbeat that we have been living with for the longest time. You know, it's very interesting. When Amy Coney Barrett was appointed There was not a drumbeat that, you know, you're looking not just for any qualified women. You were looking for a qualified woman with Federalist Society pedigree. And that was a very narrow group. And no one said in that narrow group are people who really are not qualified. You just had to say the right words and you would be in the box. You know, you had to talk the talk to get in the box. No one was talking about that. The women who have been named, and I know Katanji, you know, are superb are absolutely superb. And I. it's really late in the day to say that the effort to find a qualified Black woman is an effort to find a less qualified judge, because the pool is long and deep now, not as wide as white males who look like all the others, but that's because of who are judges. You know, there's still a very few number of women judges in general, proportionately, and still fewer African American women. But the pool is deep. And the women who have been named are certainly, are certainly qualified. I mean, you know, I, I this is, I probably will get in trouble for saying this. Clarence Thomas, how qualified was he when he went on the Supreme Court? You know, I mean, this is certainly a pool of qualified women.
0: Right. And Clarence Thomas was actually on the D.C. circuit for exactly the amount of time that Ketanji Brown Jackson will have been on. And yet he is seen as qualified and she hasn't got enough chops yet. So I think it is without a doubt a one-way ratchet. And a thumb on the scale. But I also, you know, I'm really mindful we had NAACP legal defense funds, Sherilyn Eiffel on the show. Just a few Who weeks should be ago. on the Supreme Court. Who should be on the Supreme Court and who, you know, for a million reasons isn't taken seriously, both because she's ancient because she's going to turn sixty this year. And because uh, she's way too liberal, because we're never going to put another Thurgood Marshall on the court, and we can talk about that in a minute, too. But I think that she made this point that really has kind of weighed on my heart for a couple of weeks, which is, you know, we like to say, oh, Sonia Sotomayor, you know, you go, you had that great dissent, you know, you said that thing about the stench. But she's alone there. I mean, it is really hard to be Sonia Sotomayor sitting on the court. And, you know, she misspoke at the OSHA arguments. A lot of justices misspoke. But man, the headlines for days were that she's dumb. It's really not something that ends once you go through the crucible of confirmation, that it really is, as you say, this drumbeat that follows you, where, you know, you're just isolated. And it's, So hard, I think, to think about, you know, whether it's any of the amazing women who are now being named, that even once you get through this hellscape of the scrutiny that is a double standard and the confirmation, as you noted, Amy Coney Barrett's confirmation was rife with, quote unquote, identity politics. She was a mother. She was an adoptive mother. She was Catholic. All of that is allowed. (laughs) when you're a white woman, and it's the Federalist Society. But whoever this person is, is almost set up in a way to be isolated and minimize the way Sotomayor has been on the bench.
2: There's a wonderful book uh, about the, the ways in which even women who were proposed for the Supreme Court have been trivialized, you know, in the past described in terms of what they were wearing, in terms of how attractive they were. And and even with respect to Sotomayor and Kagan, there were articles about how they were not mothers. And, you know, it's about time we had a mother on the court. There was not a discussion about fathers. We continue to caricature women. I mean, you know, when Amy Coney Barrett was, was in her confirmation process... The Democrats steered clear of the identity politics, even though they were there. And Linda Greenhouse, in her recent book on the judiciary, said, when you put out your Catholicism in articles about being a Catholic judge, then it's a fair discussion. You're not talking about private observance. You've now put it out there as part of your public facing, you know, uh, a part of you, but we didn't talk about that, but it was talked about with Sotomayor. I mean, I think Sotomayor is alone on the court, although it may be less alone now. I I have to admit that I was so troubled and struck by the mass controversy, and this actually harks back to our conversation about Justice Breyer, the mass controversy, which of course was horrifying. Sotomayor is vulnerable. She's a, you know, diabetes and she's a juvenile. Gorsuch was not wearing a mask. Justice Sotomayor was required, not required. She, 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 It was better for her to then watch the argument from her chambers. And when the press reported that as a rift, you know, between the two of them, they came out and said, no, of course, we're good friends. Of course, it's a rift. It's a preposterous position that Gorsuch is taking. And so she ha- Sotomayor has to feel isolated on numbers of axes, not just, you know, gender and ethnicity, but health. But they were going to come out and say, here we are. We are one court, even though we know that that's not true, even though we know that that's not true.
0: Yeah, it's interesting. I always think about, you know, Justice Alito, when he went through his confirmation process, when Clarence Thomas went through his confirmation process, both talked about race, both talked about, you know, Thomas talked very, very, very movingly about growing up in the Jim Crow South, and Alito talked very, very movingly about his Italian ancestors and the discrimination they faced. But the minute Sotomayor, who gives a speech about the wise Latina judge, puts that into evidence, then she gets questions about whether she's racist and whether she's a bully and whether she's unbiased, and it really does go to you know the set point, which is the only people who can be objective, I guess, are white men, and and if you suggest that you have a special solicitude or special experience If you're a man, I guess you get to have that. If you're a woman, you are forever encumbered by it. We're already seeing that comments uh, made by some of the prospective potential Biden nominees about the need for diversity in the bench are going to be an issue. Because when women say we need diversity on the bench, it means they hate white men. But this does lead me right back to the Biden Judicial Reform Commission Because it seems that you also just had to be on that knife edge. I mean, you are both a judge who worries deeply about the independence of the judiciary and the esteem of the judiciary, I think you would be the first to say, I don't wanna dismantle the judiciary. I don't wanna harm its independence. We need it. <laughs> we desperately need it. And I, Sherilyn made the same point on the show a few weeks ago. And yet when the judiciary is bringing upon itself public disapprobation and distrust, something needs to be done. And I just wanted to give you a chance to talk a little bit About that knife edge, because we started by saying that that's where Breyer lived in the last few years, but it's also where you have lived. And I think that you were also very ambivalent. I mean, I know you and Professor Tribe after the commission ended up writing saying, I think the only solution is to expand the court. And how painful that was. But can you talk a little bit about what it means when you simultaneously want desperately to protect the legitimacy of the court and you're being called out when you want to expand it for destroying the legitimacy of the court?
2: You know, it's interesting. I think it's a question of what is fair criticism of a court like any other institution? And what is unfair criticism? And that is a knife edge that I have been walking, not just when I was on the bench, but also ever since the presidency of Trump. Right. So what is not a fair criticism? Unfair criticism is Judge Litwith, you are a woman. You must be bad. You are a Trump appointee. You must be bad. You are black. You must be bad. You are Hispanic. You must be bad. That is not a fair criticism. A fair criticism, it seems to me at least, is you're not paying attention to precedent. You're not paying attention to rules. You're basically not paying attention to the currency of judges. That seems to me to be a fair criticism. And if you don't say that out loud, then the public will believe things are fair when they're not. Um, There's a legitimacy on the other side of not criticizing when courts act lawlessly. And I think it's important to say that out loud, but that is the the knife edge. I have a concern about not all, but some of the judges that Trump has uh, appointed that were confirmed are in fact, using the same playbook, district court, courts of appeals, which is to say, I don't care about precedent. I'm going to reach for issues that are not in the case in front of me. I'm going to be implementing an agenda, which is you know, a direct relationship between what I believe and what I'm going to put on paper, not mitigated by any of the rules or norms or socialization of a judge. It's so ironic that liberal, quote, liberal judges were seen as having an agenda. You know, there were no question that I had a sense of what was fair. I had been a civil rights lawyer. But whatever I did, I struggled with the law. (laughs) Here's where I thought it should be. And here's what the law seemed to require. Here's what the Court of Appeals was bound to say. Does that match? Does that make sense? And if I couldn't do it, I couldn't do it. There is not the same reticence amongst some of the justices, certainly justices of the Supreme Court and some of the judges that, that Trump has appointed. It seems to me it's a fair criticism to say they're not behaving like judges. You know, They're not behaving like, like judges at all. That's a fair criticism. I don't think that that undermines the legitimacy of the court. I also think that that's apparent, and if you don't name it, that undermines the legitimacy. Of the court more than anything else, but but yeah, we have to walk a a a fine line between what's fair criticism and what's and what's not. I'm I'm on the American College of Trial. I'm a member of the American College of Trial Lawyers, and there's a Judicial Independence Task Force that wanted to intervene whenever Trump or any other politician was caricaturing someone because of their race, ethnicity, et cetera, like the Mexican judge. Uh, riff of of Trump. And I've written to them and said, that's all well and good. But what are the guidelines for entirely fair and appropriate criticism of a court? And what's fair and appropriate criticism is you just smashed 40 years of of precedent to smithereens. Nothing wrong with saying that. That has to be said. Otherwise, we're living in a world of shapes and shadows and not real. We can be real and talk about the court as it is. Let's now
0: take a short little break to hear from some of our sponsors. And now let's return to our conversation with Judge Nancy Gertner. Judge, can we braid in one other piece of this, which I know you've thought about so much, which is the judicial ethics rules? and. I'm thinking a little bit about Jane Mayer's reporting that came out last week about the behavior of Clarence Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas. And in some sense, none of it is new. We know that she is deeply, deeply involved in lobbying in, you know, she's in the White House. She's telling people she has access to Tom. I mean, there's lots of questions that rise. And I guess, look, the feminist in me worries that we don't want to bench judicial wives. And I'm mindful of, you know, stories about, you know, Justice Brennan's wife. There was such a sense that if she did or said anything that would undermine him, that she was not allowed to speak. And I suspect that's been historically the case. And so I want desperately for judicial spouses to have jobs and meaningful jobs. And yet that's the feminist in me. The judicial ethicist in you is now going to tell me that have a job, you know, do whatever, but that there is a line. And I wanna hear you just sort of help me figure out whether Ginny Thomas is on the right or wrong side of that line. But I also want you to help me understand why the judicial ethics rules worry about not impropriety but the appearance of impropriety. It's the appearance. And I think it goes to all the stuff you're saying about, you know, you have to be held to a higher standard. This is about optics and that's for a reason. So can you talk through, that was a very, this is my tribute to Justice Breyer. It was a three-part question with a footnote, but um, (laughs) I I wonder if you can just help locate the reporting on Ginny Thomas, because I've heard an awful lot of people say totally out of bounds to go after a justice's spouse in their job.
2: But well, you know, I thought a lot about this because I can't tell you the numbers of recusal motions that I got as a judge because of what my husband was doing. So this is the reverse. My husband was the legal director of the American Civil Liberties Union, and I would get a motion to recuse me because of positions he was taking in civil rights cases. And I had a standard answer, which is, if you think I ever listen to him, you are wrong. So that's that's clearly, I mean, the notion <laughs> that I should be held account for what he's doing. But Jane Mayer's reporting was suggesting something different. She was suggesting that Ginny Thomas was contributing both intellectually and financially and through the organizations she's with to amicus briefs that were going to this court. My husband never did that. He would tell people, if you're getting near Gertner, you can't have me involved in any way, shape, or form. So... That is a different issue. It's not what she's doing in a pod, distant for even even you know dealing with issues that are issues that are appearing before the court. What was interesting about what Jane Mayer was saying was she was involved in amicus briefs that were being submitted to the court. That's a very different line, and it raises two questions. One question is the Supreme Court has no enforceable code of ethics. We dealt with that on the. White House commission. In other words, they may be bound by rules, but there's no entity that can enforce it because they're the top of the pile. So who would enforce it over them? And there were recommendations in the report about how you might go about that. So the court is bound by ethics, but there's no enforceable code of ethics against them except impeachment, which of course is virtually impossible to do. So- That is one issue. And I mean, I think the other issue is what you talked about, about the appearance of impropriety. The appearance of impropriety cannot be my spouse's political activities that have nothing to do with cases before the court. But the appearance of impropriety begins to look different when you're talking about my spouse's activities insofar as they relate uh, to what goes on in the court. That's really a different line, both an appearance issue. And I actually think an ethical, an ethical issue. The other issue is also trading on her relationship with Clarence Thomas. You know, there's a really funny story about literally my first month on the bench. There was a pornography case. There was a guy who, there was a, a seizure of really hallucious books at Logan Airport. And the case came to me. And my clerk said, we will just, you'll just send them back. Right. I said, no, I'm going to read it. I want to see if it's pornography. She says, you're going to read it. Nobody reads this. I'm going to read it. And I, I read it and I agreed. <laughs> the, the statute said, you know, it was pretty explicit about what pornography was. And so I said, yes, this has to be seized and sent back. The defendant then contacted my husband, went to the ACLU and says a free speech issue. My husband looked at it and said, okay, you got a choice here. You either have Gertner or you have the ACLU, you cannot have both. And that's what and, and that that's essentially what should be going on here. You either have Ginny Thomas and the money that she can command and the organizations that she's involved with, or you have the Supreme Court, you cannot have both. And they're trying to have both, you know, and that poor set of books was sent back.
0: <laughs> you knew it when you saw it. That's what I like. Yeah. Um no. I, I I wanna end a little bit where we started when we both went, ha ha, Sherilyn Eiffel, never going to happen. Because I think it goes to a really baked in asymmetry judge. And you talked about even that sort of slightly defensive posture you had as a district court judge, you know, where you sort of do as little as you can. you know you want to get it right. you're not you're not out over your skis. And I was really struck on Wednesday by Hill reporters running to find Mitch McConnell to ask him if he was going to obstruct Biden's nominee. And let's be clear, they've asked him, are you going to obstruct Biden's nominee in 2023 if you get the Senate? Are you I mean they have made it clear if I I don't know how to make it more manifest that they still think it's Mitch McConnell's Senate, (laughs) even though he doesn't command the majority, even though there's no nominee named. There seems to be an invitation that I can't imagine going the other way that says, help us craft a way that you are going to stymie this thing, because it's still your Senate, even when it's not. And I feel like this is all the way down. I mean, we've talked a little bit about how Justice Breyer, certainly, I think Justice Kagan is by no means the far left of the legal judicial stratosphere that given the choice to replace a justice who was far to the right, time and time again, we've seen presidents put someone at the center Left and say, you know, I don't want a Pam Carlin on the court. I don't want a, a Brian Stevenson on the court. I w- don't want a Sherilyn Eiffel on the court. I want somebody who's sort of a centrist technocrat who's not going to rock the boat. And that asymmetry means that in his lifetime, the court completely torqued around Stephen Breyer. And every justice who is appointed on the left is slightly to the right. Of the person they replace. And every justice on the right is, with few exceptions, a hunkin' lot to the right of the justice that they hunkin' not being a word any more than chalicious is, but let's just (laughs) put it out there. And I wonder if this asymmetry that goes all the way down, including the willingness of Josh Hawley to go after a, quote, woke nominee who has not been named uh, by Biden, if that asymmetry that didn't allow Senate Democrats to go after Amy Coney Barrett for things she had written about the intersection of faith and judging, that that asymmetry is why, given the opportunity to put someone who is the equivalent of an Amy Coney Barrett or a Clarence Thomas or a Sam Alito or a Neil Gorsuch onto the court. The folks on the list that I'm seeing are not, not the left all. symmetrical equivalent of that. And I wonder, I don't know, that's not even a question, it's an observation, but you can just puncture it at any place
2: you want. Well, like. No, I, I, I completely agree. I mean, the notion that even Breyer, Kagan, or Sotomayor were liberals. Sotomayor's record on the Court of Appeals was quite moderate. I sat with her as a district court judge, quite moderate. Breyer was a moderate on the First Circuit. Kagan's writings were technical. I think the best illustration of what you're saying about the Democrats proposing moderates is Merrick Garland. It's almost as if you don't have to go beyond that. Merrick Garland was Obama's pick for the Supreme Court when he had one. So I think the dynamic that you're describing is right-wing picks from the Republicans, moderate Democratic picks, who then keep on accommodating to the right-wing judges. And so therefore, the court moves to the right. And Breyer, whom I adore, is a classic example of that. Trying to find common ground with, for want of a better word, ideologues means that you move in that direction. And over time, the accommodations, in fact, move the court to the right. You know, I teach about criminal procedure. And, you know, the Warren court's innovations with criminal procedure was long ago abandoned by the Supreme Court, which slowly carved out exceptions to Miranda, carved out exceptions to Fourth Amendment suppression in accommodation for the right wing of the court. So I think you're absolutely right that the Democrats put Moderates on the court, and the Republicans have been putting more and more ideologues. The other issue is something that came up in the White House Commission and that you see in the arguments of the Democrats. The Democrats keep on saying, you know, we are institutionalists. Should we do what they are doing? Should we slash and burn the filibuster in the same way that the Republicans had done when they wanted to get? candidates through or legislation through should we behave as uncivilly as they are behaving i don't hear that discussion amongst republicans and so the wider dynamic the wider political dynamic begins to look like what i've described with the court the democrats are accommodating to strong-willed defining a line in the stand right-wingers and therefore, the politics moves to the right. The, the debate in the White House Commission was whether we'd set off a, a flurry of activity expanding the court until the court was nine hundred people. Uh, the other side of the argument was, they don't care; they'll do it if they need to. And therefore, this is a fair debate now. But the, you know, the notion that we've been putting liberals on the benches—let me say, I will make one exception to putting liberals on the bench: me. I, I have to confess, right? But I, I profoundly felt the institutional pressures when I was on the bench. Profoundly felt them. And this is apropos of your question also about identity politics. White men were the default. When we went to law school, that, they were the default. They were the reasonable man. They were the default. They continue to be the default in judicial politics, And everyone who doesn't meet that paradigm, that model, is an outlier. Instead of recognizing that the country is men and women, black and white, and the default is diversity. The default is, you know, multiplicity of experiences. I'm also reminded of this really wonderful comment that O'Connor made when Thurgood Marshall died. And she said that his presence in the room change the discussion. Change the discussion. And I think that's what we should be talking about. Who should change the discussion? Now, given the complexity of this court and the complexion of this court, you're not going to change it very much. But I think that that's a fair goal to change the discussion in the room. So, yeah, no, I think the default should be diversity.
0: It's so interesting as you're talking and I'm thinking, you know, I'm such a fossil again, because I really have such a a deep regard for Justice Breyer's aspiration about what he wanted. And I'm really aware that it wasn't just O'Connor who said that about Thurgood Marshall. It was Anthony Kennedy said it about Thurgood Marshall. Justice Scalia said it about Thurgood Marshall. I think Linda Greenhouse's construction of that was that they would always concede they didn't know what they didn't know until he started to talk in conference. And I'm trying to think of a single time in recent years that I've heard somebody say that about being in conference with Justice Sotomayor. That oh, that's so interesting. I can't think of a single time that a, you know, it's one thing for Justice Sotomayor and Gorsuch to come out and say, oh, we're friends. You know, I never asked him to mask, which was not the thing that was alleged. But to say we're friends is really, really fundamentally different from, wow, I had no idea what it was like to grow up with diabetes in a single-parent home in the Bronx as a Puerto Rican who spoke English as a second language. I mean, there is a lot to be learned from her life, and you never hear that credited at all. And it's really, I think, maybe a sad place to end, but a real signal of how far we've come even from 20 years ago.
2: Well, it, it says something about by the time Thurgood Marshall made it to the Supreme Court his observations had become legitimate uh, in the way that Sonia Sotomayor's observations have not. And maybe they were at one point, but we've moved so far into the politics of white supremacy is all that comes to mind, that what she is saying is no longer, is not considered legitimate in the same way. So I... On that depressing note, uh, in fact, this depressing interview, I'm fairly confident to say, you know, that's really all very troubling. But you're right to say, and we have to say over and over again, there is not a finer human being than Steve Breyer. There's not a man of more integrity than Steve Breyer. And, you know, although he and I disagreed about some things, his intentions, would could you know, his intentions and his goals and his purposes could never be underestimated or denied or caricatured. And I would hate to see the post-Briar court caricaturing his contribution and carry and allowing this debate to be caricatured. So we'll work against that.
0: Hmm. Come for the Deep insight, stay for the despair. That could be our show's (laughs) new hashtag. And and I want to agree. I think when I think about what Justice Breyer, just as an individual, has brought to the court, it's just an immense amount of egoless curiosity. And one of the things I loved about any time I talked to him about anything was, (laughs) first of all, like I said not interested in credit, never cared about credit, but really like was curious about, you know, reading Proust in the original French, like just the whole world was fascinating to him. And I I think that will be missed. Judge Nancy Gertner is a former federal judge appointed to the U.S. District Court of Massachusetts by President Clinton in 1994. She retired from the bench in 2011 to teach at Harvard Law School. She's written and spoken about civil rights, gender, sentencing reform, and we will have to have you, back Judge Gertner to talk about reimagining judging because I think it is cutting edge thinking about how judges do sentencing. Her autobiography, In Defense of Women, Memoirs of an Unrepentant Advocate was published in 2011. And it is a must read for folks who are thinking about some of the questions, many of the questions that we've talked about today. Judge Gertner, it is always a joy to talk to you. And really, really, we appreciate this insight, I think, on judging and the courts, what we still have and what feels like it's slipping away. Thank you. Thank you. And that is a wrap for this episode of Amicus. Thank you so much for listening in, and thank you for your letters and your questions. You can always keep in touch at amicus at Slate.com, and you can find us at facebook.com/slash amicus podcast. Today's show was produced by Sarah Burningham. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer, and June Thomas is senior managing producer of Slate Podcasts. And we will be back with another episode of Amicus in two short weeks.